Hello and welcome to The Collective Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. On The Collective Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses. Businesses and wealth that would outlive their founders and have sustained impact over space and time. And we have these conversations with genuine curiosity and authenticity. Vulnerability is our middle name. And this week we were joined by Andrina Sawyer, who is just on fire. Amazing. She's an author, a consultant, a strategist and a non-profit founder. Andrina survived the civil war in Sierra Leone and she's a woman of wisdom. And you can tell that this wisdom has been birthed from places of testing (laughs) and she leaks and shines authenticity and inspiration. And I found this conversation so moving. I was taking notes all through and yeah, so I'd encourage you to tune in, enjoy and share this episode, share this with a friend. I'd appreciate that. Thank you so much and enjoy. Hi, Andrina. Welcome. Welcome to The Connected Generation. Thank you so much, Nikkei. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's awesome to have you. Um, You're an author, consultant, strategist. Um, Tell us, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I'm what I call an accidental entrepreneur. Yeah, it's interesting because I graduated from college and the trajectory of my career, I'd already planned it out and said I was going to become an, an attorney, a civil rights attorney. Mm. And I went to law school and about a semester into law school, I started having some personal issues. And so I went to the dean of my college, my university, and I told him I have to take a leave of absence. And they were very accommodating and they said, yes, you can take a leave of absence. Well, a leave of absence turned into a permanent removal from law school. And wow. yeah, I, t- I fell into this uh, a little bit of a funk um, because, mm. yeah, law school was everything I'd worked for. Um, I was a first generation college graduate, worked really hard to get there, was on a partial scholarship. Everything looked like it was going to just plan out and just map out perfectly. Um, and so when I had to have that conversation about taking a leave of absence, I got depressed. Mm. And nonprofit development has always been kind of this refuge for me in volunteer work, community development. And so to cope with my depression at the time, I started volunteering with Mm. an organization uh, that was working with asylees and refugees. And it turns out that it was kind of a perfect pairing because the executive director loved the work I was doing. Um, And the short version of this is that he started telling people about this pro bono consultant, which was me. I didn't even know that was my title. (laughs) I was just a volunteer. He started telling other people, some of his colleagues about me, and they started asking, hey, can you come work with us? Mm. And so before I knew it, um, in just a few months, I was working with three different organizations across two cities in Ohio doing nonprofit development work. Um, And I sat down with a friend of mine one day and she said, have you ever considered just going into nonprofit and not trying to bang this law school door open? (laughs) And I just rejected it. And I said, no, I'm going to go back. This is going to be a leave of absence. I'm just volunteering. Um, And again, the short version is about three years later, the opportunity came for me to do more consulting work. 
Mm. And I said, I think I get it. I think I found what I'm supposed to be doing, even though it's not what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just uh, started my consulting practice, Perk, and I've been doing that for 11 years now. Wow. I think there's so much in there already in that, like, we have a plan and life usually throws us throws at us curveballs yeah. and we can either keep banging the door open proverbially like you mentioned or we can slow down listen to the lessons the messages that god is sending us through our circumstances and lean into that but doing that is scary very yeah for for me it was scary because one it wasn't what i'd worked for i worked for law school and i've pretty i've been very ambitious pretty focused most of my life and so anything outside of what I have tunnel vision about is a mm. distraction in my mind. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't what I worked for. And it was scary because I knew, even from a teenager, that the nonprofit world wasn't very lucrative. And so mm. I was not going to dedicate my life to working in an area where I could not see myself becoming upwardly mobile. You know, mm. I come from an immigrant family. I come from a working class family. Like my life's plan was not to be what my parents were. My life's plan was to surpass where they were economically. And I did not um, think the nonprofit world was going to do that. And then it's just scary uh, taking a leap of faith and just doing something that, you know, that's that's new to you, that you might yeah. not see that. So, yeah, yeah you're right. It's, it's absolutely scary. So I want to know how how did you make that transition? Because I think that as entrepreneurs, as individuals, as even in corporate, these life transitions um, often come with inner resistance, right? And like, you know, it would have been easier for you to just stick to the prescribed path where there was a defined career trajectory than to forge your own path and go into something in your mind that was pioneering. So what were the tips and tools that you used to be able to navigate that embracing the unknown, going into this world of, I don't know what's next. Yeah. I'm a planner, mm-hmm. which, which helps. Yeah. Oh, it helps. How? Yeah, Explain. it helps. Help. Explain. It yeah, even my transition out of full-time work, because before I started Park, I was working full-time for the Department of Human Services. I wrote my resignation letter eight months, nine months in total before I actually quit. Wow. Yeah. So I wrote it, typed it up, put it on my vision board. And it was January when I wrote it. And I said, in August, I'm quitting. August 8th to be exact. And what I used those eight months for were to plan. So I started getting some clients that I could work with just so I could build my portfolio so that when I did quit, I can kind of rely and fall back on those clients, their testimonials, things like that. Well, August 8th came around and I got scared. And so I waited an additional month and didn't quit until September. Mm. Um, But that was one strategy that helped me to just be a little bit more comfortable because what I did in those eight months, I was very, very intentional about marketing and strategic planning on the back end and um, building my client portfolio and things like that. So that helped. I'm also, though, very and I think a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to this, but I'm very spontaneous. I take calculated risks a lot. <laughs> and so I I got to a point where I realized this was between the August and September. 
no amount of planning was going to help me. It was either I did it or I did it. And mm -hmm. so at some point you just kind of have to take that leap and just realize that's kind of what comes with, with this um, space that we're in. Indeed, indeed. And that's what, yeah, I was going to say that I think like there is some element of planning that one can do to help, but there's still a level of unknown, right? Yeah. Um, and with even with like budgeting and saving for, you know, to have funds in place as you're launching something new, like, you know, your forecasts are often completely out of whack <laughs> from reality, right? So True. there's an element of just, um, yeah, you can plan, but honestly, just take that leap. I want to take you back a little bit. And you said you didn't really consider the nonprofit world because um, it, you were seeking a lucrative career to kind of something that was upwardly mobile, given your immigrant background. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I, I knew I did not want to be stuck in a career where I wasn't making an impact. And so I justified how do I make an impact and still make money? I kind of reconciled that by becoming an attorney, a civil rights attorney. Okay. And so, yeah, so I could fulfill kind of both both longings, uh, one, to be economically stable and two, to make an impact in the world. Um, nonprofit, I've actually been doing nonprofit work since I was 15. And I did wow. not know, yeah, I did not know that that's what it was. I started my first nonprofit organization when I was 15 years old. Um, when I got involved with those three organizations, I realized that I was wrong, number one, about how lucrative nonprofit could be. So it's it's a falsehood that you mm. can't make money in nonprofit because there are so many ways to do that. And so part of my journey was, okay, now that I know I can make money from it, how do I not go into it just for that sake? How do mm. I not just um, exploit the public dollars that are out there, the grant funding that's out there, donor, you know, things like that. How do I not exploit it and still kind of maintain my integrity to do good work and hope that it sustains me? Mm -hmm. um, so that that was a process. Um, that was definitely a process. Um, but I was wrong. And that's what brought me peace mm -hmm. about staying there for as long as I have. Mm -hmm. And you you immigrated to the U.S. and you survived the Civil War in Sierra Leone. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So my, my family came here when I was nine, um, which is uh, in 95, which was around the time that the war was coming into Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, where I'm from. And when we came here, we essentially started all over. Mm. Me, my mom, my dad, uh, one sister at the time. Um, so I saw my, my father working three jobs at a time trying to rebuild his family. I saw my mom doing odd jobs, trying to figure out how to best support the family. And the one thing that they insisted is that although we're leaving chaos, essentially, you guys, uh, me and my sister had the opportunity to, to do really well in this country, mm. that America is kind of the land of opportunity. And so even when it came time for me to look at colleges and look at career options, that's the one thing that stood with me. I've escaped the civil war, but it's not for naught. Like I'm here to do something to improve my family's standing, um, mm. you know, and to make sure that I take advantage of every opportunity that I'm getting here. Yeah, it's interesting um, because on Wenga's episode, I think we spoke a little bit about this. Like, 
as immigrants, um, the pressure is to make it all the sacrifice that's been made and feeling like you're um, one of the lucky ones that got this opportunity to be in the land of opportunity. And there's a lot of pressure with that, right? A lot of pressure. Um, I was actually talking to someone else recently about survivor's guilt. It's Mm. like, you don't quite know. um, And when you come as young as I, I did at nine, you don't know a lot of what's going on. So you're processing in hindsight, right? So at 15, 16, 17, I'm realizing I haven't seen a lot of the kids I grew up with, my, you know, my formative years. Mm. So there's survivor's guilt of they didn't make it or they didn't get to come here. Why me? And how do I make sure that that's not in vain? And then as you become, yeah, as you become an adult, I think it becomes less of a question of why me and, you know, why not me? You know, so now you start asserting yourself and becoming more confident and you're thinking, why not me? Well, if I'm the quote unquote chosen one or if I'm the one that gets this opportunity, I now have an obligation to go back and do more. So it's less of a guilt, um, you know, that that's fueling you and more of a an obligation to 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 pass it on um, and to help others. It's interesting you say that because I was going to ask you, um, because you mentioned um, nonprofit had been your refuge for a while and there was almost, you were looking for a way to marry achieving purpose with a lucrative, financially prosperous career, right? Um, Because you thought um, it wouldn't be possible to achieve that outside of like say civil rights, being a civil rights attorney or what have you. I was going to ask you, where do you think that drive for purpose came from? Because I can see strongly where the drive for financial security came from, from, like you said, you, you coming to the U.S. was under quite traumatic circumstances and escaping the survivor's guilt. Where, where did that inner drive for purpose come from? Yeah, I think a lot of it is spiritual for me. Mm-hmm. So I come from a family that's very religiously devout. Um, you know, I was in church six days out of seven days a week. Um, and for a long time, it was very performative. And I think in college, I started having a series of spiritual encounters that made it more personal for me. Mm-hmm. And so even reflecting on why did I come to this country and not just me as in, you know, among my friends, but in my family, you know, mm-hmm. my family, my parents, siblings, none of them are in the United States. So their children, none of them. So we are kind of <laughs> like the only ones. Mm. And so part of the spiritual exploration is I think that I'm here for something bigger. And when I look around me and I look at the circumstances around my family immigrating to the United States, and I look at this deep yearning that not even my profession is fulfilling, mm. um, I have no other way to classify it other than I think this is a deeply spiritual kind of question for me, which is why am I on this earth? Um, And again, because we spend so much of our time with work, the natural progression for me was how do I fulfill the spiritual uh, longing in my work? Because I spend more time there than in any other way in my life. What other place um, is better than to to reflect that in my work? So then my work became, yes, nonprofit and impact, but there are these stages, right? So after I felt like I I hit my stride there, now, how do I make sure that impact is purposeful? It's not performative. It's not just a buzzword. It's not just trendy. But I'm deeply fulfilled so that when I go to sleep at night, like, I feel like I did everything that I could. You know, like, this is why I'm here on earth. 
For sure. I, this totally, totally resonates the kind of vacuous feeling, a hollow feeling when you're not achieving what you believe is your mission on earth. And it's interesting that, um, last week's episode with Stephanie, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it, it went live yesterday. Um, she spoke about something very similar in that she took time to unveil and discover her purpose and um, to really clarify what her vision was. And she said something like, vision is a seed, um, and it really requires nurturing, and it requires the right conditions for it to cultivate and grow. And she spoke about how she spent a lot of time working on herself and her character. So this totally, totally um, resonates yeah, that's so good. Um, so with Perk, my consulting practice, our logo is a tree that's grown out of concrete. Wow. And yeah, that's exactly the reason why. It's because, you know, no matter why people start businesses or why they start organizations, given the right set of circumstances and the right amount of nurturing, I do believe that things can grow. So, you know, we are visionaries. And if you spend some time working on yourself and birthing that vision um, that only you can see. It's such an odd kind of precarious situation to be in to birth a vision because you are the only person that sees it. But with the right amount of watering, the right amount of attention, I really do believe that all of us have an opportunity to do something impactful in this world. 100. The loneliness of being the visionary is something that we don't talk about enough. Like, like you said, only you can see it. How did you pull through when... You can't talk to your girlfriends about this or your partner about it. No one gets the, it's like pregnancy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Your, your ankles are hurting. Your back is hurting. You can't sleep properly. You can describe these things to your spouse and your friends, but they can't get it because they, they're not carrying what you're carrying inside yeah. of you. Right. Right. Yeah. So how did you, um, as you were carrying this vision, and even till now, I believe like you're still continuously, it's a progressive thing. How do you deal with the, the loneliness of being the visionary? Yeah. So the first thing is to unlearn, unlearn hmm. this idea that people have to get it in order to kind of justify what it is that you're doing. People, hmm. people are under no obligation to support you and they're under no obligation to understand it. And I think the sooner, we, yeah. <laughs> I think the sooner we get that, the sooner we free ourselves. Hmm. And we free them. Hmm. <laughs> no, keep going, girl. I'm, I'm learning. No, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The sooner we, we, we free, we, we unlearn that, the, the sooner we can free ourselves and free them from the hmm. expectation that they have to support us. And, you know, one of the things that I, I have made peace with is making peace with the loneliness. Like, that's a process hmm. in and of itself. But I remember applying for law school, taking the LSAT, and I would sit with these mentors and every single one of them would tell me, listen, no one's going to understand, especially being a woman of color. And they were right. So I got into law school and I was one of 13 students, black students in a building with 180 something students. Hmm. Right. And even with that, like you have different like socioeconomic backgrounds. From, you know, within these these thirteen students, you have male and you have female, and you have all these immigrant, non-immigrant. Like there's all yeah. sorts of yeah. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be an element of loneliness, no matter where it is that you are and what it is that you're pursuing. 
with entrepreneurship, I think it's amplified because it's it's a lonely process, but it's also like you're, you're visioneering. Like yeah. in law school, I'm not visioneering. You know, I'm kind of fitting into a role. But as a as an entrepreneur, I had to make peace with the fact that this is a lonely thing and everybody goes through it. And it was kind of my rites of passage. Now, once I made peace with that, I was able to kind of go through the ebb and flow of it all. <laughs> and then make some adjustments for how I dealt with it when I felt like it was absolutely necessary. So when it started affecting things like my mental health was mm-hmm. when I realized you have to get like a, a group of people, a support group. You have to find a networking organization, a chamber of commerce, a mentor, something that you'll be able to um, to, to bounce ideas off of. Now, doing it in that order was helpful for me because then I didn't hold those people hostage to having to be there for me all the time, you know? So when I needed them on occasion, they could be there. I could tap into them and they were free to go, right? And there was no residual resentment. There was no, you know, unmet expectations. But when they couldn't be there for me, I was okay because I was at peace with the fact that no one owed me Mm. 24-7 attention. Adrina, wow, wow. I think there's a head knowledge of no one is obligated to essentially share the burdens with you or understand what it is you're going through. But then there's, a, as you said, making peace with it. That's a different level of maturity that I'm on that journey there. Um, yeah. But you, you spoke... <laughs> because it's, it's just a wild, like, you're constantly in your head... Yeah. on your own and you you want to bring what's in your head into life and you want to talk about it with everyone um, but I think you said something that and when you were speaking what I was just what was being impressed upon me is it's almost a fantasy that we've all been told that um, yeah. we must be understood 100% by everyone around us and not necessarily yeah it's a fallacy it's a fallacy and and there's so much value Nikkei, in in being alone that i learned huh. in hindsight yeah, experience yeah i mean you you mentioned um character building with your last true. guest true. it cannot happen character building is not a group project true and people do not get that in true. isolation is where you really get to know yourself it's where you get to be so confident in this vision that you're you're steering that even if other people say you can't do it, even if cash flow is low, even if the market trends and you have to pivot, there's a kind of like resolution within you that only isolation builds. If you God. if you leverage it, right? Like being mm. able to be in a room of people, if you're let's say you're uh, starting, you're a, a startup entrepreneur. Being in a room full of multi-millionaires, right, and having to pitch, like, it takes a certain level of confidence to be out of your depth, but still know who you are. <laughs> like, mm. and that can only come when you are alone, like refining the vision, refining your marketing messaging, coming up with even a strategic plan as the visionary, like you can only do that in isolation. When you get in group settings, there's so many distractions. You have people who want to give input into something that they have no business giving input into. (laughs) You know, you get into people pleasing mode and you get into like personnel management and relationship and putting out fires. 
And in isolation, you don't have to deal with anything. You can just deal with the essence of what's in front of you and present whatever you come up with, present that to the world. And there's there's a lot of value there that we don't like. You just delivered me. Um, <laughs> <caused. laughs> um, you just delivered me. Because um, when I reflect on my personal evolution and my, my, my journey, there was a season of separation and a season of profound loneliness that I, till this day, um, I wrestle with and I haven't made peace with. I know it was critical to get me to where I am, but honestly, I don't reflect back on that time with joy. Like, I don't reflect back on it like, oh, yeah, you know, this, this, this happened. That. But as you say it, honestly, you, you, you said it in a way that I've never heard. And it just feels like the pennies just dropped. Um, that loneliness is a gift in itself because the distraction of the crowd, the distraction of the group, um, detracts you from really knowing self and really honing your, your craft. Absolutely. I, I want to, um, talk a little bit about when you said there are um, times when community or groups or people are good for us as entrepreneurs. Can you unpack that a little bit more? You spoke about mental health, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I think the group serves several different purposes. One, obviously, I think there's immense value in community just for morale sake. Um, if you are in a hole by yourself all the time, um, that does start to become a problem because you have no one to bounce ideas off of. Right. As human beings, I think we're wired to be in community, like we're wired to laugh. There's a reason why touch like a hug has um, almost like medicinal value to yeah. us. Like it, there's something about it that soothes, soothes, soothes us. Um, so as an entrepreneur, I think making it a point to be in community is helpful for that reason. But then strategically, it's also helpful for accountability. Um, because when you have entrepreneurs that operate kind of in this silo space all by myself, they think that their ideas are the end all be all. Mm -hmm. And we don't have, <laughs> we don't always have the benefit of like seeing the reality of what we're projecting and what we're building. And so that's why people hire consultants, for example, is to bring someone in to look at the holes. And it's not to say the idea is bad, but they have an objective lens that you don't because it's your baby. So when you're mm -hmm. in community, you're opening yourself up to that kind of feedback, to that kind of accountability. Um, and even in terms of follow through, I think um, community is helpful. One of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges in entrepreneurship is just burnout because yeah. you do everything for yourself. And when you're in community, you do get that kind of a support. Hey, you're going to be able to do it. Hey, you said you would. Have you done? Have you met this goal yet? Kind of the step by step um, fellowship that I think is really helpful. For me, I knew I had a situation my third year in business where I found out one of my employees was stealing from me. Oh. And I was already going through a lot of, yeah, a lot of just personal things. It was just a bunch of things just um, overloaded um, on, on my plate at the time. And I remember talking to my business mentor um, and he said to me, and he gave me such sage advice. He said, Andrina, you marry the mission and you date the model. And what he meant by that is, you know, why you go into business, that never changes. So when people steal from you, when clients reject you, that why never changes. But how you're doing business, that should change. Um, and so 
It got me out of the funk. It got me out of the depression just to be able to talk it out. And mm. that's, I think, the value of community is to get out of your own way so that other people can help you uh, with this project. Wow, I love that so much. You marry the mission and you date the model. And you were talking about um, the benefit of having a consultant, kind of stress test a lot of the thinking and the hypothesis and whether this is a viable opportunity, etc. And something that really stuck to me, and I've been seeing this with my friends that are in entrepreneurship, is when you are emotionally attached to the um, model, yeah, you have a fixed idea in your mind of how this is going to pan out and you fall in love with the model and you you refuse to see that, come on, this model is not, this is not a wife female. This is not somebody I can settle down with. This thing is just not working, right? And you refuse to let it grow and evolve and look for another model. How do you have any, anything to say about that evolution, how you let things go and move on and keep it moving, being fixed on the mission? Yeah, I think some of it is that character development that we talked about um, earlier on, which is having the ability to like nurture the baby without like suffocating the baby. And that mm. only comes when we're in a space where we can separate ourselves from the business. I see a lot of that suffocation when people assume that their business is them. Like there's no separation. Mm. I just have so much to prove that it's like all of a sudden I'm, I'm out to prove people wrong. It's no longer about the viability of the business idea. It's about my reputation. It's about my pride. It's about whatever. Um, for the people who are struggling with that, I would say make it a point to know what the separation is. That marrying your 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 mission um, doesn't marrying your mission and date the model doesn't come easy. And truth be told, I think it's not until a lot of us hit rock bottom that we realize the value of pivoting. So unless you've learned this, I mean, in an academic setting where you just see that, you know, this in a case study in university, it's very easy to point out and say they need to pivot into. mm -hmm. Yeah. But when you're in it and it's all your resources down to the penny, it's your blood, sweat and tears. It's harder to let go. And so for a lot of people, yeah, it's not until they're forced to let go, usually in some kind of like succession opportunity or the business dying. Um, then they realize that pivoting is critical. Um, We saw a lot of that with COVID-19 where people's businesses, because they could not uh, pivot um, to virtual models, for example, a lot of businesses went out of business. Hmm. You know, the statistics are crazy um, and startling around that. But to anybody that's doing that, I would say separate your, your personal identity from the business identity so you don't suffocate this vision. Um, you are not the business. The business is not you. It's what you do. It's not who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but make make sure that you're responsive. Make sure that you build and develop a strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Don't don't just like don't just like go through the motions with business. Like make sure that you actually have a documented strategy for how your business will scale, especially in the areas of operations and customer service and finances. Um, because without that that plan, you're really just sort of winging it. Winging it, yeah, for sure. And this is really reminiscent of my conversation with Benga because we were talking about activity and identity. And one of my mentors says it's important to dissociate your 
your value from the value of the business because you have you have inherent value and you need to get to know yourself and know what who is Nikia outside of being a business owner and then what is the value or of the business right and so when the business is not working according to plan it's not that Nikia field it's the business is filled but this is all very again very academic and theoretical and it's much harder in practice to to actually um to live by this but it's like you said it's uh, a lot of the time we have to hit rock bottom before we climb back up and I, I don't necessarily mean that in the business sense that like the business collapse and then you now move into a different um, platform product or paradigm I, I mean that sometimes when our identities are embroiled in that of the business sometimes we have to we Nikkei has to hit rock bottom and then it's like ah okay, the business has to pivot, that's A. Then I also have to reorient the way I see myself as well yeah. in the midst of that. I, I, you learned this very early on, which is that good businesses respond to a need. And it's like, the need is the precedent. Like, that's the first and foremost. And the minute you lose touch with that need, like, you've lost touch with the landscape. And the thing about the need is that the need changes at any given yeah. time. And so good business owners, I think, learn in response to answering that need that we have to be very reactive and not always proactive. Because when we're proactive, Mm -hmm. we're trying to always build, 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 build. But what happens if you've built a structure and the need changes? Mm -hmm. Now you've built this structure that's not responding to the need. And so inherently, this business is no longer viable because it's not meeting the needs of the people. The needs have changed, even though your business hasn't changed. Um, and so, yeah, keeping in mind that the value that you bring is answering what you need and knowing that the needs will change. Once we understand that the needs of the market will change, it's easier, it gets easier to kind of disassociate and separate um, so that we're always like in step with what the market needs. We have contingencies, obviously, because we mm-hmm. assume that the trends will stay the same, the market will stay the same, our customers, our resources, all of that will stay the same. But in the event that it doesn't, how does my business change? And that's what I think good business owners do. Andrina, I think what you've just said is just so wise. And as you were talking, I wrote down countercultural because I feel like in the business world, um, we are programmed, conditioned to of urgency in that I mean there's this pressure to be have this first mover advantage have the novel and the new um, bring out something innovative that no one else is doing and so a lot of the time we're not necessarily creating or building based on a core need that the customer has requested expressly said I want black coffee venti from Starbucks you're out there creating an AI tech enabled something that no one knows whether there's a need for it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing about innovation that's funny is there's nothing new under the sun. There's so the no. innovation, yeah, that we're praising is just the iteration of something else that existed. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, as we go backward, it's like, what's the real innovation? Is the real innovation the first person that touched that thing or the person that did the last iteration before you got to it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, innovation is really kind of, I think, an abstract abstract concept. Also, concept. Mm-hmm. I think there's value to becoming and being the first one on the scene. But there are plenty of uh, circumstances where the first one on the scene 
got credit just for that. They did not best one on the scene. They just got the credit yeah. if people remember them because sometimes people don't even remember <laughs> the first one on the scene because, again, there have been so many iterations or the first one on the scene actually didn't meet a need. They just started the conversation around meeting the need. Um, so that rush to be there um, is, is interesting. It's almost like it's almost a futile kind of thing. Yeah. I think we see that even with social media, you know, like about the next big thing. But before this was something else and there was MySpace and before MySpace, there was something else. And everything that's innovative now is eventually going to be outdated. Indeed. So I think the challenge to us is not to be the first one, but to be the best one. And even mm. understanding that best is subjective, right? So best to the to the best of our ability, um, because different segments, different needs. So what's best for people, best for people over here. So to the best of my ability, responding to the need that's here. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I think you've delivered a lot of people. Um, <laughs> Um, I want to learn more about Perk. So tell us more um, what you do and how you help your community. Yeah. So so Perk stands for passion, experience, relevance, and knowledge. And those are our core values. And, you know, as I said, when we first started 11 years ago, I was only servicing um, nonprofit organizations. And a few years in, um, a few for-profits started working with us and needed our services. And now we're actually working with colleges, universities, Small wow. to mid-sized nonprofits and small businesses. And we offer three core services. Uh, for the solopreneur and the small entities, we work, we do entity formation. So that's like registering the business, getting you the right documentation, all of that to get started. And then this development umbrella, which is rather large. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where you would find like our strategic planning offerings. And then the third is our capacity building arm. That's where we do like a lot of trainings and capacity building support, um, especially for larger organizations. Amazing. And how were you able to make that evolution from just nonprofits to include corporates and small business owners, entrepreneurs, et cetera? I guess you followed the need as well. Right. That's exactly it. (laughs) Just responding to the need. Um, When, well, that and also responding to our capacity, like providing services based on our, our capacity. So when we first started, I was a solopreneur, so I could only serve what I knew. And then once we realized that for-profits needed similar support, um, and let me back up and say Perk was founded on this idea that people should be able to get quality services at affordable rates. Hmm. When my family came to the United States, the organizations that helped us were the small organizations, not the huge nonprofits that everyone knew. But those were also the organizations that were going out of business all the time. Employees had high burnout rates. Funding was limited. So my heart was really for that type of organization. So when I started, that's exclusively who I served um, under PERC. And then once word started to spread a little bit in the D.C. area about what we were doing, then I found that larger entities wanted to work with us. But they were expecting services that we were beyond my capacity to provide because there was only one of me. So then I started hiring out and contracting people to serve more people. And the more our capacity grew, the more clients responded. 
And so it kind of just had this effect where it was like, what comes first, the egg or the chicken? Um, mm-hmm. We responded to the need and we um, there was this cycle of us responding to the need, the clients wanting more. We responded to the more that they wanted and it just kept going. And so now um, we've kind of found a sweet spot where there's a segment that's still true to who we are for when we first started. And now um, based on our funding needs, our capacity needs, again, we're servicing much larger clients than we originally intended to. That's amazing. Um, and how has that been for you as a leader? Because you've gone from solo to leader of a team, right? Yeah. And what what were the key um, traits, tips that you used to navigate that evolution in your leadership? Yeah, um, being true to myself, authentic, authenticity, right? So the culture of Perk is very much a reflection of who I am as a person, Right. Like a lot of organizations, um, the culture will reflect the leadership. Um, And so as I'm building this team, understanding that the culture and the attitude that we wanted to serve Perk with, that should never change. I've loved growing the team. Obviously, the biggest challenge with startups, uh, which, you know, we were for several years is high turnover. You can't compete necessarily in terms of salary, in terms of benefits, in terms of even just notoriety and and reputation. Like you can't compete in those ways. And so figuring that out has been fun. How do we incentivize people to come work with us or to contract with us, even though they might not get what they're going to get at large firms? Um, And a lot of that, again, was just like you coming into a culture where you are valued, where your input is accepted and you're making tremendous impact for local organizations. It's been a learning curve for me, you know, Sure, I'm an introvert, like my personality. And so I don't mind working by myself for too long, (laughs) but it doesn't, it it doesn't like, um, it doesn't always do well when you're leading a team. team. Yeah. So just relearning myself, relearning my personality, again, just responding to what people need. I, uh, mm, I asked that question because a lot of our listeners are on a similar kind of trajectory, like mm-hmm. starting up and looking to grow and just wanted to know how you're able to like enhance your leadership along that journey. But also you mentioned something earlier, which is fundraising, pitching. Yeah. Um, do you have any experience in that or do you have anything to say to the audience on like tips on how to raise funds and pitch like you said you might be the only black female in a room and you you know you're not as financially well off and all the other people are a lot more financially successful how do you hold your own with confidence and power and presence to be able to um, present your ideas with conviction yeah know yourself and know your business well so know know yourself um imposter syndrome is huge in in early (laughs) startup spaces you know a lot of us are trying to be something that we're not and the danger is that we don't we don't realize how often our authentic story, how often that appeals to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we undervalue our story. You know, Benga's the king of storytelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he can speak to that former guest. Mm-hmm. But there's power in that. And so spend a lot of time just knowing yourself, knowing what you stand for, what you are willing to do and what you're not willing to do. But also do your homework and do your due diligence so that you know your business and your industry well. No one likes the confident person that doesn't know what they're talking about, 
Like you yeah, just come across as like arrogant and incompetent. And so, you know, part of the, the challenge is to know both really well and to pair those really well when you step into the room. In terms of pitching, like there are certain strategies for pitching, right? Like the way that you talk, being concise, like knowing what the buzzwords are, um, answering the question of what's your why and what's your how. Those are the two most important questions when you're pitching, why and how. You know, if you're pitching to investors, really all they care about, even more than your story, is how they're going to get their money back and how mm -hmm. their money will be used. And so learning those kind of technical skills um, is helpful for pitching your ideas. I remember the first pitch competition I won was $2,500 with Capital One. They did like a, a big pitch competition here. I went and I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. But I met, yeah, I met with my mentor who was a veteran, you know, had been in business for 30 something years and he gave me some tips. And that's what we did. And then over the years, you know, you kind of learn a little bit more about what those key skills are. At the end of the day, though, um, the skill of pitching, we do that all the time. Whether it's to investors or potential clients or potential partners, we're always pitching. And it all boils down to whether you know yourself and whether you know your business. 100, 100. It's storytelling, essentially. Yeah. Really. That's where Winga, Winga is actually the king of this. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you spoke a little bit about burnout and mental health. And it's really rampant with entrepreneurs in the startup phase. Can you elaborate? Yeah, burnout, it's a real thing. I mean, it is what, what happens when we don't know when to turn off our minds and when to turn off our businesses. Um, you know, I wrote this book called The Misadventures of a New Entrepreneur. And in it, mm. I share a story of a young man that we started business at the same time. And I like looked up to him. It just, he was getting national press. He was doing all these things that I aspired to get. And I remember about a year after meeting him, he uh, put out a press release that he was going out of business because hmm. of burnout. So he'd run out of cash. People were not supporting him and he was moving back home with his parents. And Nikkei, it felt like a gut punch to me, like, like it was my business because hmm. a lot of what he talked about on the technical side, financial management, cash flow, diversification of finances and revenue, I'd experienced all of that. You know, betrayal with personnel, like lack of uh, retention. I'd experienced that. And then on the other side, with the personal development and the, the personal connection to business, like being fatigued, being tired, like not being motivated, being depressed and anxious, I'd experienced all of that too. And so I understood why he closed business. And the more vocal I became about burnout, the more I realized there were a bunch of us who were experiencing the same symptoms, who never spoke up. And so we just assumed we were the only ones only experiencing one. it. But every entrepreneur, if you are diligent and you're putting in work for your business, you will experience it at some point. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have some systems in place to make sure that you handle and navigate it well, you know, you could still save yourself and save your business. But if you don't have those systems, a lot of times it looks like closing up the business. I've seen I've heard of stories of even business owners committing suicide at the most mm. extreme because of, you know, some of the things that happen as a result of, of the burnout. So sad. So sad. Yeah. It's um, tough. Entrepreneurship yeah. is tough. It is not it's for the faint of heart. It is not. It really yeah. is not for the faint of heart. Like the way it's portrayed on social media is far from the reality. And 
I wanted to talk a little, just my last question, so mindful of time. You mentioned that when you were growing your business, one of your employees was stealing from you. How did you deal with the fraud and what were your lessons looking back on that season? Yeah, so the, I fired her, you know, obviously. I remember sitting in the conference room and just explaining this is what I've uncovered. And she was apologetic, maybe to say face, I don't know, but she was fired. The learning lesson for me and the takeaways for me was I did not have good systems in place. Uh So in strategic planning, for example, there are these four quadrants that we do when you're doing um, your strategic planning framework. And one of the most important quadrants for your business is capacity, which is your people. And, you know, best practices with onboarding and retaining good people is to make sure you have trainings in place, confidentiality forms, you know, um, things like that, uh, conflict of interest, things like that. At the time that she was with me, I didn't have any of those things. in place. Mm. I didn't have any of those parameters. And so I'm helping other people build their businesses and I'm learning on the job as well. And that was an area I'd focused so much on the financial quadrant of my business and the marketing and operations part of the business that I neglected that one area. Mm. And that cost me, thankfully it wasn't like a huge permanent loss. It was something that we were able to get over after a bit. But what it did for me was it drew my attention. You need to focus on this quadrant. In fact, the strategic planning framework, you need to make sure that you're spending equal time on all areas um, of your business on the back end. So thanks Mm. to her, we had our first employee handbook we had our first um, employee training. We decided to implement quarterly professional development trainings, which when you're working for a larger corporation, these are things that are just a normal. A given, part. right? Mm, yeah. In a small a business. Mm. Yeah. With a, with a small business um, that's a startup, to someone that did not study business, mm. um, it wasn't a given. And so thanks to her, um, you know, we learned that. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I wish we had a little bit more time, but we're running out of time. I just wanted to know if anyone wants to learn more about you, more about your work, where can they find you? And also the book that you mentioned. Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate the the conversation. Um, So I'm on social. So Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. If you want to learn more about Perk, our main website is perkconsulting.net. And then if you want to check out any of uh, my books, that last one is called The Misadventures of a New Entrepreneur. You have multiple books. You have four books. Wow. <laughs> this is what happens, right? Really? You, have a, you have a lot of stories, so you just write. <laughs> wow. You're all also. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So if you go on Amazon and just type amazing. that title, um, it should pop up. Oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Angelina. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> Wow, wow, wow. There was so much that Andrina said there that was just wow. The first thing that she said to me that really hit home was the piece on, as entrepreneurs, we need to make peace with our loneliness. And the distinction between knowing when it's good to be lonely and it's not good to be lonely. And I think this is so important because I, as I kind of alluded to on the podcast, I've, I, in my head, understood the importance of the seasons of separations, a season of loneliness, but not necessarily made peace with that. And I think in my mind, when I, having reflected on this conversation, I think there is a distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge. 
Because when something translates from the head to the heart, there's a peace that comes with it and an acceptance and uh, you stop wrestling and you start accepting and you start seeing the positives and you just settle. And I do agree with Andrina that there are positives of being being lonely. And as entrepreneurs, we should draw on that as a strength rather than resist it and um, quietly grumble about how how it's so uncomfortable. The next piece that she said that I absolutely love was the bit on we need to learn to marry the mission and date the model. And it's so much easier said than done. (laughs) I know it. And I think this is where Simon Sinek comes in with start with why. Having this very clear sense of purpose and living a purpose-driven life. Marrying that purpose and then being flexible with how that purpose manifests itself is the most important thing. Quite often we can get so lost in the model, in the how and the tactics and we get we marry that and then the divorce oh lord it's messy it's messy you know I remember um a couple years ago a friend of mine she she broke up with her boyfriend and they'd been dating for many years and we were talking about the separation right they were not married but it was still very hurtful and traumatic for her we were talking about the separation and I was like you know what it's never clean it's never just like two sheets of paper and you pull them apart and you, the two of you will go on with your separate lives. But actually, it's you've been enmeshed with like glue and as you're pulling apart, you're both taking pieces of each other away with each other and you're both forever changed by that relationship. And I think it's the same emotionally when we have to go through a divorce process as entrepreneurs from the models. It's painful. <laughs> we are changed. But I think we can... Again, a reframing, there's something to be learned from that season. And that is we will never marry the model again. We will only date the model so that we can quickly dump the model that's not working and move on to the next. Because we must remain in true focus of true service to the customer, be customer obsessed and oriented. And that moves me on to my last point that Andrina spoke about and is we should seek to be the best one and not necessarily the first one. And that was when we were talking about first mover advantages and what have you. Seeking to be the best one requires knowing who we're best for, and that's a customer. Oftentimes when we're seeking to be a first mover, it's ego-oriented, it's me-oriented about status and how one looks in an industry with the bells and whistles, um, over-engineering, over-innovating, over-futuristic, as opposed to what is it that the customer or ideal client base has expressly said they need assistance with or um, is showing indications that they need assistance with. I think if we start there, and we serve them with excellence, we serve them making iterations to our model, we will never lose. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'd appreciate if you'd leave a review, a rating. Um, It helps with the algorithms to um, create more visibility for the podcast so that 
more people can be blessed by all this amazing content that I'm blessed by with all the guests. And so yeah, I'd appreciate for you to like, leave a review and a rating and share this episode with a friend that you know this would be super helpful for. Thank you so much. Take good care. And as always, God bless you.